Chapter Forty One of North Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty One Disaster. About noon of October twenty fourth, Captain Hall and his party were seen in the distance approaching the ship. Captain Tyson, the assistant navigator, went out to meet them. Not even a dog had been lost and Captain Hall was jubilant over his trip and the future of the expedition. While he was absent, the work of banking up the Polaris with snow, as an increased defense against the cold, the building of a house on shore for the stores, and their removal to it from the ship, had gone forward nearly to completion. He looked at the work, greeted all cheerfully, and entered the cabin. He obtained water and washed and put on clean underclothes. The steward, Mr. Heron, asked him what he would have to eat, expressing at the same time a wish to get him something nice. He thanked him, but said he wanted only a cup of coffee, and complained of the heat of the cabin. He drank a part of the cup of coffee and set it aside. Soon after he complained of sickness at the stomach, and threw himself into his berth. Chester the mate, and Morton second mate, watched with him all night, during which he was at times delirious. It was thought he was partially paralyzed. The surgeon, Dr. Bessel, was in constant attendance, but after temporary improvement he became wildly delirious, imagining someone had poisoned him, and accused first one, then another. He thought he saw blue gas coming from the mouths of persons about him. He refused clean stockings at the hand of Chester, thinking they were poisoned, and he made others taste the food, tendered him, before taking it himself, even that from sealed cans opened in his cabin. During the night of November 7th he was clear in his mind, and as Surgeon Bessel was putting him to bed and tucking him in, he said in his own kind tone, Doctor, you have been very kind to me, and I am obliged to you. Early in the morning of November 8th he died, and with his death, the American North Polar Expedition was ended. The grave of their beloved commander was dug by the men under Captain Tyson, inland, southeast, about a half mile from the Polaris. The frozen ground yielded reluctantly to the picks, and the grave was of necessity very shallow. On the eleventh, a mournful procession moved from the Polaris to the place of burial. Though not quite noon, it was Arctic night. A weird electric light filled the air, through which the stars shone brilliantly. Captain Tyson walked ahead with a lantern, followed by Commander Buddington and his officers, and then by the scientific corps, which included the chaplain, Mr. Bryan. The men followed, drawing the coffin on a sled, one of their number bearing another lantern. The fitting pole thrown over the coffin was the American flag. Following the sled were the Eskimo, last in the procession but not the least in the depths and genuineness of their sorrow. At the grave, Tyson held the light for the chaplain to read the burial service. As the solemn yet comforting words were uttered, I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. All were subdued to tears. Only from the spirit of the gospel, breathing its tender influence through these words, was there any cheerful inspiration. The day was cold and dismal, and the wind howled mournfully. 
inland over a narrow snow-covered plain and in the shadowy distance were huge masses of slate rock the ghostly-looking sentinels of the barren land beyond seaboard was the extended ice of polaris bay and the intervening shore strewn with great ice blocks in wild confusion about five hundred paces away was the little hut called an observatory and from its flagstaff drooped at half-mast the stars and stripes far away were his loved family and friends whose prayers had followed him during his adventures in the icy north who even now hoped for his complete success and safe return and far away the christian burial place where it would have been to them mournfully pleasant to have laid him but he who had declared that he loved the arctic regions and to whose ears there was music in its wailing winds and whose eyes there was beauty in its rugged icy barrenness had found his earthly resting-place where nature was closed in its wildest arctic features a board was erected over his grave in which was cut to the memory of c f hall late commander of the north polar expedition died november eighth eighteen seventy one aged fifty years when the funeral procession had returned to the ship all moved about in the performance of their duty in gloomy silence it is sad to record that the great affliction caused by the death of hall was rendered more intense by the moral condition of the surviving party two hideous spectres had early in the expedition made their appearance on board the polaris they were the spirits of rum and discord commander hall had forbidden the admission of liquor on shipboard but it had come with the medicines whether of them or not it was put under the key of the locker but it broke out no we will not do injustice even to this foulest of demons an officer selected to guard the safety and comfort of the ship's company broke open the locker and let it out this brought upon him a reprimand from captain hall and later a letter of stricture upon his conduct the doctor's alcohol could not be safely kept for professional purposes which raised altercations on board so rum and discord always so closely allied went stalking through the ship with their horrid train insubordination of course was from the first in attendance hall had it would seem in part persuaded into submission his ghastly spectre where on shipboard the lives of all depend upon submission to one will rebellion becomes in effect murder we have seen that dr kane argued down this bloody intruder by a pistol in a steady hand levelled at the head of the chief rebel and that dr hayes saved his boat party by the same persuasive influence over kalutuna but hall was not reared in the navy and was cast in a gentle mould on the sunday following the burial of hall it was announced that from that time the sunday service would be omitted each one can pray for himself just as well it was remarked the faithful chaplain however seems to have held religious service afterward for such as pleased to attend hall had taken great pleasure in it and it had we think attended every arctic expedition through which we have carried the reader after such a purpose to dismiss public worship from the vessel we are not surprised to learn 
that the men made night hideous by their carousings. Nature without had ceased to distinguish night from day, and our explorers did not follow the example of their predecessors in this region, and make day and night below decks, by requiring the light to be put out at a stated hour. So the noise and card-playing had all hours for their own. Under the circumstances, as if to make the Polaris forecastle the counterpart of one of our city hells, pistols were put into the hands of the men. Discord was now armed, and alcohol was at the chief place of command. The Christmas came, but no religious service with it. New Year's Day brought nothing special. The winter dragged along, but not the wind, which roared in tempests, and rushed over the flow in currents travelling fifty-three miles an hour. It played wild and free with the little bark, which had intruded upon its domain, breaking up the ice around it, and straining at its moorings attached to the friendly berg. Spring came at last. Hunting became lively and successful. His Majesty the Bear became meat for the hunters after a plucky fight, in which two dogs had their zeal for bear combat fairly subdued. Musk oxen stood in stupid groups to be shot. White foxes would not be hit at any rate. Birds, trusting to their spread wings, were brought low, plucked and eaten. Seals coming out of their holes, and stretching themselves on the ice to enjoy dreamily a little sunshine, to which they innocently thought they had a right as natives of the country, were suddenly startled by the crack of the rifles of Hans and Joe, and often under such circumstances died instantly of lead. It seemed hardly fair. In fact, we are confident that the animals about Polaris Bay contracted a prejudice against the strangers, except the white foxes, who could not see what hurt these hunters did, at least to foxes, and they were of mind that it was decided fun to be hunted by them. The Eskimo have been in this high latitude in the not-distant past, as a piece of one of their sledges was found. Soon after Hall's death, the chief officers had mutually pledged in writing that it is our honest intention to honor our flag and to hoist it upon the most northern point of the earth. During the spring and summer, some journeys northward were made, but were not extended beyond regions already visited. The eye which would have even now looked with hope and faith to the region of the star, which is the crowning jewel of the central north, was dim in death. Captain Buddington, now in chief command, had faith and hope in the homeward voyage only. On the 12th of August, 1872, the Polaris was ready, with steam up, for the return trip. On that very day there was added to the family of Hans a son. All agreed to name him Charlie Polaris, thus prettily suggesting the name of the late commander and of the ship. Little Charlie was evidently disgusted with this native country, for he immediately turned his back upon it, the ship steaming away that afternoon. The Polaris had made a tolerably straight course up, but now made a zigzag one back. On she went, steaming, drifting, banging against broken floes, through the waters over which we have voyaged with Cain and Hayes until they came into the familiar regions of Hayes' winter quarters. On the afternoon of the 15th of October, 
the wind blew a terrific gale from the northwest. The floe, in an angry mood, nipped the ship terribly. She groaned and shrieked, in pain but not in terror, for with her white oak coat of mail she still defied her icy foe, now rising out of his grasp, and then falling back and breaking for herself an easier position. The hawsers were attached to the floe, and the men stood waiting for the result of the combat on which their lives depended. At this moment the engineer rushed to the deck with the startling announcement that the Polaris had sprung a leak, and that the water was gaining on the pumps. The captain threw up his arms and yelled the order to throw everything on the ice. No examination into the condition of the leak seems to have been made. A panic followed and overboard went everything in reckless confusion, many valuable articles falling near the vessel, and of course were drawn under by her restless throes and lost. Overboard went boats, provisions, ammunition, men, women, and children. Nobody knew what nor who. It was night, an intensely dark, snowy, tempestuous night. It was in this state of things, when the ship's stores and people were divided between the floe and her deck, that the anchors planted in the floe tore away, and the mooring lines snapped like packthread, and away went the Polaris in the darkness, striking against huge ice cakes, and drifting none knew where. Does God care for sparrows? And will he not surely care for these imperiled explorers, both those in the drifting steamer and those on the floe, whom he alone can save, and housed in an arctic night, on which no sun will rise for many weeks, exposed to the caprice of winds, currents, and the ever untrustworthy ice raft on which they are cast. We will leave the flow party a while in his care, and follow the fortunes of the brave little vessel and her men. End of chapter 41